1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, we're continuing our, our way through First Timothy. Uh, we're calling it Blueprints for the Household of God. Uh, what we're looking at is through the lens of First Timothy, through this letter that Pastor Paul is writing to Pastor Timothy, uh, we find blueprints, instructions for a healthy, gospel-shaped church. And so if you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it uh, or open up that app and turn to First Timothy chapter 1. Let me pray for us and we'll get started. Uh, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for my friends, uh, my, my church family, uh, my brothers and sisters here. Uh, Lord, we rejoice uh, in the fact that we've got uh, baby Tanner here with us and uh, my mom and dad, and uh, we've just missed fellowship with them, and um, we are just so thankful uh, for the privilege uh, and the honor that we have to, to open up your word, to study it together, uh, and we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just help us to see Jesus more clearly, to love the gospel uh, more passionately, uh, and we just ask God that you would do this in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, as some of you know, uh, we took our, our two oldest kids uh, to, to Disneyland a few weeks ago uh, for their birthdays. Uh, their birthdays are really close to each other. Uh, they're, they're both in September. Uh, they're about two years apart from each other. And so, you know, this, like September on uh, is like the thick of birthday season for us. We got multiple family members have birthdays in September and October. And then we got the holidays uh, that we, we move into. My, my wife's birthday is in December. And so um, basically, like, uh, the whole last part of the year is, like, the time that we don't have any money. Uh, and so uh, when we went to Disneyland, though, uh, a few weeks ago, the first ride that we took our kids on, uh, my decision was to take them on to Guardians of the Galaxy. You guys know that ride? Uh, California Adventure. Uh, it used to be called Tower of Terror, right, because it's uh, really tall, uh, and absolutely terrifying. Uh, and, and our youngest uh, kid that we had with us, our, our, our middle child, like he, he was just barely old enough to go on to this ride. And so um, my thinking, the idea was this, is that if we could get them through this ride first, this scary ride, this terrifying ride, like, and if they knew that they could survive that ride, like one of the gnarliest rides in the park, then uh, my thinking was, you know, they could, do, they could do pretty all right with all the others, right? Uh, and they, 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 they go throughout their time at Disneyland saying, you know, like we've already conquered the hardest ride, and so uh, all the easier rides will be exactly that. They'll be easy. Uh, and so, you know, suddenly after we go through Guardians of the Galaxy, that's like, they, they got that under their belt, and it's like, oh, Big Thunder, Big Thunder uh, Mountain, like more like Little Thunder Mountain, right? Like it, it just, if you went through the big one, if you went through the hard one, then you could go through the littler ones. And that's kind of the point that Paul is making here in our passage. When he talks in these verses, he talks about what God has done in his own life, how the gospel has changed him, how God has taken one of the wildest, most rebellious, most violent persecutors of Christians, that was Paul, and he turned him into a leader in the church, not just a believer, but an apostle, a pastor, a trainer of other pastors and church planners. And, and the idea is like, if God can do that to Paul, if God can do that, then there's no one out there that is so far gone that God can't reach them. There's no heart that is so hardened that God's patient mercy can't reach it. And that is the good news for us in this passage of scripture. Uh, I'll have it up on the screen for you. The good news from this passage of scripture is that God can change anybody. 
He can change anybody. There's nobody beyond the reach of God's patient mercy and his saving grace. Look, that is good news for us, right? Amen? That is good news for us. And many of us in this room, we know this firsthand. We know this firsthand. Like for some of you, you'd be the first to raise your, your hand and, and submit your own story as exhibit A, evidence that God can change anybody. One of the things that I love about this church community in particular, as small as we are, as, as new as we, we are at this, this whole gathering as a local church thing, uh, one of the things I love about it is how diverse our faith backgrounds are. Like some of us in this room, we were once atheists before we came to Saving Faith in Christ, right? Raised, uh, some of us were like raised uh, unchurched, had no church background at, at all, or, or maybe you were raised in the church and, and then uh, you, you're, you're now what we might call like de-churched, right? Like you, you, you were raised in the church and you're like, you know, this isn't really for me anymore. Uh, and, so, and so you stopped going, but now you've come to, uh, and, and then you were like an agnostic or an atheist for a while, for a season, uh, like I was myself, uh, and then you come to saving faith in Christ. Some of us, some of us in this room, I'm thinking of a few of you that were like just straight up enemies of the church. Not only did you not believe, but you took pride in your unbelief and you made it your mission to get your Christian friends to question their faith. I mean, that's true of like one of our key leaders here in this church, one of our, one of our core uh, planting members, like that was his goal. Like he, he lived his life trying to, to deconvert his Christian friends before he came to faith in Christ. And for some of us, maybe we had this very, very religious upbringing regular church going, uh, but, but you didn't quite know the gospel. Some of us were maybe self-righteous religious people, really involved in church, uh, right? We served a lot. We gave a lot. We were participating in all these different ways. Uh, but you, you, as the older you got, you come, came to, to understand that, uh, you know, you really had no real understanding of grace. You didn't really know Jesus. Let me tell you the good news in this passage again. God can change anybody. He can change any of us. The gospel can reach into any crevice of any heart and melt that heart of stone. And what we see now in this portion of 1 Timothy is a personal moment of worship where Paul just bursts out and prays because God is a God who can change anybody. And the middle of our passage is one of the clearest, uh, shortest, and most concise statements of the gospel, I think, in the whole Bible. We see it right there in verse 15, and we'll start right there. In verse 15, Paul says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I, Paul says, am the foremost. And so we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at that verse and the surrounding verses and look at how this gospel shapes our thoughts and lives as Christians. This gospel shaped the thoughts and life of Paul, and we're going to see how this gospel should shape our thoughts and lives. Point number one, when you're shaped by the gospel, you understand that the gospel is both cosmic and personal. The gospel is both cosmic and personal. Now, if, if, you, if you pay attention to kind of the conversations that are happening in the, in the Western church uh, arena, you, you'll see that some churches, they, might, they, might, uh, they're, they're, they have this emphasis of uh, the kingdom, right? The kingdom of God, this global work that God is doing to save sinners, to redeem creation. But then you also have this other group that is more focused on like the personal aspects of the gospel, like the cross, right? Uh, and there's this, this movement uh, to sort of, this movement over the last few, uh, over the last half century to sort of separate the two. And I think that that's, that's a mistake. The gospel isn't just kingdom, massive, world-changing, and it's not just personal, has to do with our cross and, and, and repenting of our personal sins. It's, it, it's both. And it's one of the reasons that we chose the name King's Cross Church uh, for our church family is because we wanted to make sure that as, as a church, we have embedded in the very name and our very identity the fact that, no, we are about the global, expansive kingdom of God, but also the fact that we are sinners saved by grace because of the cross of Jesus. 
Let's focus in on, on that, that, that phrase there in the middle of verse uh, 15 when it says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's a cosmic statement. Christ Jesus, he came into the world to save sinners. Now, if you read that too fast, you might miss the world-changing truth that is contained in those words. You see, when it comes to the things of God, words matter. We talked about this at the beginning of our series about how every single word and phrase and even the grammar is so important and carries authority with it. I want you to to develop the habit of of paying attention to the words that we read, the words we sing, the words we recite in our liturgy. Words matter. Otherwise, you can miss something so awesome in a key little turn of phrase. Now, let's look. What does this verse say? That, That phrase, rather, what does it say? It says, Christ Jesus, listen closely, he came into the world. Christ Jesus came into the world. Now, what does that tell us? What is so significant by that phrase and by the grammar in that statement? Christ Jesus came into the world. So that means, that tells us that before the world uh, before, ever was, before, before Jesus was actually born in the Christmas story that we all know so well, before Jesus was born, Jesus Christ, he already was. He came into the world because he already existed beforehand. Jesus, he's the eternal son of God. He is the pre-existent one, the second person of the Trinity. He was there before the foundation of the world was laid. He's not just a good man or or teacher. He's not the half-brother of the devil like like some people teach or or, or some like divine therapist like our our self-help culture might, might, might encourage us to think. Or he's not your holy homeboy. Jesus said it plainly, and the scriptures testify again and again that he is God. Now, I want the weight of that, I want the weight of that truth to just sink in for you. You see, some of us, when we think of Jesus, we don't think about his greatness, about his majesty, about his godness. We think of him as like baby Jesus, meek and mild Jesus. If, uh, if you guys have seen that uh, great, uh, great flick called uh, Talladega Nights, you guys remember that, right? You got that classic scene where Ricky Bobby's like sitting around the table and he's leading his family in prayer and he keeps, he keeps praying to sweet baby Jesus, right? And then uh, some of his family members, they get upset and they're like, man, you know, like you keep praying to baby Jesus. Like, why, why? you know, you know, he, he grew up eventually, right? And then they have this like argument about like which version of Jesus is like the best Jesus. And, and Ricky Bobby's like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm all about sweet baby Jesus. And so he, he continues his pray, prayer and he says, sweet baby, little bundle Jesus, you know, eight pounds, six ounce Jesus. That's his favorite Jesus to pray to. And like as funny as that is, I think we do that all the time. We pick and choose the parts of Jesus that we're most comfortable with, that don't challenge us. Do you know who the real Jesus is? The one who came? Read these two verses in Colossians 1 with me. Paul, writing to the church in Colossae, he says, For by him, speaking of Jesus, for by Christ all things were created. Through him, from, by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. You see, Jesus committed the ultimate act of scandalous grace by being the pre-existent one, the second person of the Trinity, and coming into the world, putting on a robe of human flesh, being born in Bethlehem as a little baby in a manger. You see, it's not that Jesus grows up to be something bigger than a baby. It's that he always has been. God came into the world. Jesus came into the world. He came into the world to live the life that we can never live by keeping the law on our behalf. And then he died the death that we deserve to die because of our sins. God, the creator, took on flesh to become a man. 
The great shepherd became a sheep. The king of kings became a servant. The high priest became a sacrifice. The great judge became the one who was punished in our place. And then he rose from the grave to do what we could never do, conquer evil, sin, and death. And in that, in that conquering, in that victory, in that resurrection, he made a way for sinners like me and like you to be saved. Now check it out. This gospel, this good news, Paul says, is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Look at that phrase. He says this is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came to save sinners. That's his way of saying, hey, look, you got to write this down. Pay attention to this. Accept this. Write this down because you don't want to forget it. And look, for the last couple thousand years, for the last couple millennia, that truth that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners has been trusted and accepted and proclaimed by the church generation to generation to generation to generation. In fact, the very reason that we are here today gathering in Jesus' name on Sunday, the day that he rose from the dead, is because it is real. It is significant. The gospel's trustworthy is because Jesus is trustworthy. And this is in contrast to the false teachers that we read about a few weeks ago, whose words were built on speculation. Not on the word, but on speculation. But with this gospel, you can count on it because Jesus is the very word of God. It's also in contrast to the false teachers who were also devoted to myths. You guys remember that? They were devoted to very various myths and genealogies. But no, this gospel is historical. Jesus entered human history. He lived in history. He died in history. He rose in history. He was seen by thousands upon thousands after the resurrection. The gospel's unstoppable. It's cosmic. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's cosmic, but it's also personal. Look at verse 15 again. It says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul says, Of whom I am the foremost. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners like me and you. And Paul says, sinners, I'm at the top of that list. Paul considers himself at the top of the list of humanity's sinners, of history's sinners. He calls himself the foremost of sinners. Other translations, you might be familiar with the language of the chief of sinners. What he's saying is, of all the people that I know, of all the sinners in the world, Paul says, I'm the worst. I know it. I'm the worst. And if you actually look back at verse 12, it's as though he's thinking about what this gospel means to him personally. You see, when Paul talks about the gospel, he's not talking about like abstract theories. He's not running his mouth on, on rumors. He's not pontificating. He's speaking from his own personal experience. This leads us to point number two, where I want you to see that if you're shaped by the gospel, you understand that nobody is beyond the gospel's reach. Number two, nobody is beyond the gospel's reach. Go back now to verse 12 and 13, where Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. Now let's unpack those words really quick. Blasphemer. What does Paul mean when he says that he was once a blasphemer? A blasphemer is somebody who spoke evil of Jesus. Somebody who spoke evil of Jesus' church. Basically somebody who threw up a middle finger to heaven. He even tried to get others to blaspheme the name of Jesus. Others who were followers of Jesus, he tried to get them to blaspheme the name of Jesus. Uh, for example, in Acts 26, we read that when he stood before King Agrippa, he was on trial for uh, professing the faith. And he says in Acts 26, verse 9, 
beginning in verse 9, he says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in, a, in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. He's talking about all the, all, all the Christians now uh, that he could find. And he says, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. The second thing he calls himself is a persecutor. A persecutor. A persecutor is somebody who was like a cold-hearted enemy of, of Jesus. He had deep hatred for Jesus and his followers. You see, before Jesus miraculously saved him, Paul was a religious zealot. He was like the equivalent of a jihadist. The first time we actually see Paul uh, in the scriptures is in the book of Acts, where he went by the name of Saul. And in the book of Acts, he oversaw, in uh, Acts 6 and 7, he oversaw the stoning of Stephen, who's the first recorded martyr. And when the church scatters in panic and fear, we see that it's Paul who actually leads the charge to go after them, arresting whoever he can, imprisoning whoever he can, killing whoever he can. His mission, he made it his life mission to destroy the Christian church. He straight up admits that to the church in Galatia. In the Galatians 1 verse 13, he tells that church, he says, you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of Jesus, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it, tried to level it. He also describes himself as an insolent man. An insolent man, uh, and, and, and an insolent man is basically somebody who found satisfaction in insulting and in humiliating people. Insolence is like a mixture of both arrogance and violence. Arrogance and violence, you stick it in a cocktail, shake it up together, that's what insolence is, right? And Paul made it his personal mission to destroy and humiliate anyone who worshiped Jesus. That is until, until he saw the resurrected Jesus and was miraculously saved. Man, this is what I love about Paul's story is that Paul was actually on his way to Damascus to kill Christians. When he was on that Damascus road, he was on his way to seek and, and hunt down and kill Christians when Jesus comes and transforms Paul's heart and mind. I mean, if there was anyone, if there was anyone that you'd think did not deserve God's love and mercy and salvation, it was this guy, Paul. Look what he says in verse, in verse uh, 13 and 14 of 1 Timothy 1. He says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now, really quick, I don't want you to misunderstand what Paul's saying here. He's not saying, look, God showed me grace because I was ignorant. It's like when you tell the officer, like, no, officer, I didn't know it was a 35 zone, right? And he's like, sir, you were going 75 in that 35 zone. Like, like no excuse is, is going gonna, is gonna to get you off the hook, right? Saying you didn't know is not going to cut it. So that's, that's not what he's getting at when he says that he acted ignorantly in unbelief. To help us understand this, you got to remember the people that were causing issues in this church, the ones that Paul charged Timothy earlier on to address and confront. These were the people that were saying, hey, if you keep the law, if you're a really good religious person, then you can be right with God. Totally void of the gospel. Nothing, no grace in that. Just if you try really hard, if you obey the law, if you keep the law, then you can be right with God. And Paul is saying here, man, those guys were so off. Like, look at me. I kept the law. I kept the law. No one kept the law better than me. I followed all the rules for the law. I killed Christians for the law. I thought God was stoked on me because of all that I was doing, all my, my, my whole uh, repertoire of all the things, the great things that I did uh, because of the law. But when Jesus showed up, Paul realized, like, no, you know what? I'm not a follower of God at all. 
I was ignorant. In other words, he says, look, there was hope for me. There's hope for me. And he's saying, look, if there was hope for me, then there's hope even for the false teachers that I'm telling you to confront in the church. There's hope for them too if they repent. There's hope for anyone who doesn't know the gospel. You see, after seeing the risen Jesus, Paul, the murderer of Christians, became a pastor to Christians. He went from someone who put Christians to death to someone who preached hope at their funerals. He went from devoting his entire life to destroying Christianity uh, to surrendering his life to spreading it, planting churches, being an apostle to the Gentiles, spreading the good news to the ends of the earth. And, And he paid the price for it too. He paid the price for giving his life in service to Jesus. He was made homeless. He was beaten. He was on the run from his former comrades. He was imprisoned for, this, for a single reason that he wouldn't stop preaching about the resurrection of Jesus. Paul's saying here, he's saying, look, man, look at my life. Look at my life, guys. Look at my life. Do you think a persecutor of the church, an insolent man like I was, a blasphemer, would act the way that I'm acting now? Preaching, planting churches, training up pastors, visiting different churches to encourage them to press on in faithfulness? But see, when he meets Jesus, when Paul meets Jesus, his former team, they turn on him. The religious zealots that he was once one of them, they start harassing him. They put a bounty on his head. They had him arrested. They attempt to assassinate him multiple times. This is what I want you to see. The gospel changed Paul. The gospel changed Paul. What does that tell us? It tells us that nobody is outside the gospel's reach. Nobody. He was the worst, but that made him the best example of what the gospel could do. If God could be patient with him, with a guy like Paul, and change him, then anyone can get in on this. Anyone can get in on this. Paul straight up says that in verse 16. Don't don't miss what he says. He says, but I received mercy for this reason. Here's the reason he received mercy. That in me, as the foremost, as the chief of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Do you see what he's saying? Did you catch what he's saying? He says the purpose of God's grace towards someone like Paul was to demonstrate and display God's patience towards you. And to demonstrate God's patience towards every person. Every person. If God could do that for Paul, how much more could he do that for us? And so if you're, if you're sitting here thinking, man, God, God can never forgive me. God can never save me. He could never want me. I've fought against him. I've ignored him. I've opposed him. I've, I've, I've rebelled against him. And I even liked it. I even liked it. If that's you, know that there's Patient mercy. Patient mercy from God and Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. God took the most aggressive persecutor of the church and and turned him, transformed him into the most anointed missionary in the church. And he did that so that you would know something about his patience and mercy tonight. Look, no matter where it is that you're at, no matter where it is that you come from, no matter what it is that you've done, no matter what 
what, what doubts have crept in, whatever skepticism you once had, you are not beyond the mercy of God. His grace reaches deeper than your sin. It reaches wider and farther than your selfishness and pride. His mercy suffers longer than your rebellion ever did. If you'll just turn to him now. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, Paul says, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Look, Christianity is the only religion that is inherently for bad people. Christianity is the only religion that is for bad people, for jacked up people like us. You see, every other religion says if you're good enough, God will accept you. But the gospel says, no, you're worse than you don't even know. But God still accepts you and adopts you in Jesus. Every other religion says you got to do these things. You got to fall into these categories and then God will be pleased with you. But the gospel says, no, Jesus, he did it all. He did it all for you. He pleased the Father with his life. And he went to the cross to satisfy God's wrath in your place for your sins. Christianity says, I'm all wrong. I'm messed up. I'm all wrong. But Jesus Christ, he makes it all right. Christianity says, I am unrighteous. But Jesus Christ is my righteousness. It says, I am worse than I can imagine, but Jesus Christ is better than I could ever dream or fathom. It says, I am my worst problem, and Jesus Christ is my only solution. It says, I am God's enemy, but Jesus Christ calls me friend. It says, I am a child of the devil. That's what Ephesians 2 says, but Jesus Christ made me a child of God. I am under the wrath of God, but Jesus Christ put me under the love of God. I am a sinner, but Jesus Christ is my Savior. I am dead, but Jesus Christ has made me alive. He's made me new. He makes me new to walk in a new life. The gospel is for sinners like me. It's for sinners like you. It's for bad people like us. That's why when Jesus was being criticized for hanging out with sinners and all the, all the people were, were kind of criticizing him for that, what, what did he say? He said, I didn't come to call the self-righteous, but for sinners. That's who I came for. That's what we are. The gospel does not call us to try harder. The gospel calls us to Jesus. He's the only one who could keep the law, and he kept it for us and died on our behalf. And see, when you start, when you start to finally see the gospel the way that Paul does, when you start to see the gospel the way that Paul does, it changes everything. Everything changes. This massive paradigm shift happens. You see, most Christians have been taught a diminished view of the gospel. We were taught that the gospel is just, it's, it's just the door or the entry point into God's kingdom. But the Bible says, no, the gospel is so much more than that. It's not just the door. It's also the path that we're to walk every single day of our Christian lives. It's not just what we need to believe to be saved in a moment. It's what we have to keep believing in order to be transformed. Look, if you've been around our church for a while, you've, you've probably seen this diagram we have up here. I think it helps illustrate how Paul talks about the gospel in his, in his writings. Um, different people have, have put different uh, uh, forms of, of this, of this uh, uh, chart uh, in different devotionals and study materials. It's pretty simple, but the way that it works is you've got like your uh, time goes from left to right, right? And so as time goes on and the point of your conversion, which is where the, the, it, the Y comes out, right? At that point of conversion... Two things should be happening if your, your vision is shaped by the gospel. Is that the more you mature in the gospel, you grow in greater, greater awareness of God's holiness. And you also grow in growing awareness of your 
flesh and sinfulness. And if that's happening, if that's happening, then the cross becomes bigger to you as time goes on. You see, the longer that Paul lived, the more he became aware of the holiness of God. The more he lived, the more he studied the scriptures, the more he got to understand God's nature and his character and his attributes. He's like, oh my gosh, like God is bigger to me today than he was last week. His view of God's holiness got bigger and bigger. But also, the more he became aware of the holiness of God, the more aware he became of his own brokenness, of his own sinfulness. And that is how you know that you're maturing in Christ. That's how you know that you're maturing in the gospel. Have you ever wondered, how do I know that I'm, I'm growing in Christ? How do I know that I'm growing in the gospel? It's, this is happening. That's how you know that you're maturing in Christ, is because you're growing in humility. The closer that you draw to Jesus, the bigger that you see he is. And the more you grasp his holiness, and the more you reckon with your sinfulness. Notice the progression of spiritual humility in Paul's life. When he wrote to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he said, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. And then a few years later, when he's writing to the church in Ephesus, he says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints. Saints, by the way, when the New Testament uses saints, if you were raised Catholic, you, may have, you might uh, have been taught that like a saint is sort of like a super Christian, right? Uh, but no, the New Testament teaching, a plain reading of the scripture says that a saint is really anybody who's in Christ, Everyone, if you are a follower of Jesus, then you are a saint. And a few later years after writing the letter to, to Corinth, he writes to Ephesus, I'm the least of all the saints. So he comes, goes from saying, I'm the least of the apostles, you know, like the, 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 uh, the elite apostles, to now he's saying, like, no, I'm like, I'm the least among the saints, amongst all the Christians. This grace was given to preach to Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And then a few more laters after that, we have him reading, uh, writing uh, this first letter uh, to Timothy where he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost. I'm the worst of sinners. I'm not just the least of the saints, but I'm the worst of sinners. You see, Paul understands that the longer that you walk with Jesus, the more you realize how jacked up your heart really is. But the good news, and there's always good news on the other side of that. That's why we don't stay in despondence. That's why we don't build, beat ourselves up uh, in guilt and in shame. There's always good news on the side of it. The gospel is realistic with us that the longer we walk with Jesus, the more you realize how jucked up your heart is. But the good news is that the longer you walk with Jesus, the bigger the cross gets for you too. You see, for the Christian who's maturing in Christ, Jesus should get bigger every year. God's holiness should get bigger every year. Your awareness of your sinfulness should get bigger every year. And therefore, your understanding of what Jesus did for you on the cross, in your place, for your sins, should get bigger every year. The gospel should get bigger for you, more amazing to you, more awesome to you, more heartwarming to you. It's like Aslan and Lucy and C.S. Lewis's Prince Caspian, the second book from the Chronicles of Narnia. There's a scene where, where Aslan uh, 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 and Lucy are together, and, and Lucy, the youngest of the Pevensey children, she, she looks up at, at Aslan after not seeing him for a while, and she says, Aslan. You're bigger. And he says, that is because you are older, little one. And she says, not because you are. And he says, I am not. But every year that you grow, you will find me bigger. When you're maturing in Christ, the gospel gets more amazing, more awe-inspiring, more heartwarming, and more massive and magnificent with every new year. 
And so know that wherever it is that you're at, wherever it is that you've done or wherever you come from, the gospel can reach you. Christians should never get over the grace of God in our lives. It should never grow stale or boring. It should never grow plain to us. It should continue to amaze us, continue to humble us, stir our hearts' affections more and more with every new season of growing in grace. And when you understand that, when you begin to see that, you will be filled. You'll be filled with praise. That's our third and final point, number three. God's grace leads to God's praise. God's grace leads to God's praise. I love how Paul just gushes out in praise in verse 17. He says, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. After going on and on about the ministry that he received by grace, after going on and on about how he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, about how Christ Jesus came to save sinners, of whom he is the foremost, after going on and on about that, he says, now to the king. He just burst forth in worship. Now to the king of ages, immortal and visible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. When he says refers to Christ as the king of the ages. That points out to the reality that the glory of God is royal. He is sovereign. He's the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, and he is on the throne. When he calls God immortal, what he's talking about is how the glory of God is eternal. It's eternal. He never grows tired or weary. He cannot be touched or affected by death. He never changes. It says that the glory of God is invisible. God is beyond the, just this, this physical throne. He's beyond the limits of we can see or imagine. Nothing compares with him. He's spirit. And it says he's the only God. And let's talk about this one because this is probably the most troubling one for people in our cultural moment that we find ourselves in. We don't like... When, when people say there's only one God, right? We get accused of exclusivity, right? Uh, they, they prefer to say, no, we, like, we all believe in the same God. Like, why do you got to be so exclusive? When people do that, what they're, they're actually doing, the very thing that they claim to hate and despise. Because if you say we're all worshiping the same God, that's a specific view of God that you are now imposing and pushing on others, A view of God, that's a generic God that hasn't revealed himself, that hasn't spoken on who he is. A generic God that doesn't care about sin or doctrine, that doesn't care to be known. And look, Christians, we don't have to fear being exclusive, which, by the way, that's just a product of post-enlightenment anyways, uh, the post-enlightenment era. We can say that there is one God, that he is king, that he is glory, that he is immortal, that he is mercy, that he is grace, that he is good, that he is the one true God because he's revealed himself that way in Jesus. And God's grace, God's grace leads us to God's praise, the praise of our one and only triune God. Look, I take a look at my messed up and jacked up imperfect record every day with my pride and my failures and my hangups, my impure motives, and I hold on to the gospel because I need it. And I remember that though I'm a great sinner, Jesus is a greater savior. His mercies, the Bible says, are new every morning. 
He gives us a new song to sing each time. That doesn't mean that we all suddenly become like songwriters like in the gospel, right? Like we're not all T-swifting it just because we, we, we know Jesus now, right? And he's like made us go from death into life. Like what, the, what it means when the Bible says that he's given us a new song every morning is it's like whatever song of praise we have to him is as though, it's as though we're singing it for the first time again. He gives us a new song to sing. If you're living as though you don't, if you're living as though you don't need him, you're not only lying to yourself, you're missing out. Before we close, I want to just give a few points of application. Like if this is all true, if our lives are shaped by this gospel, then what is that, how, how, how does this impact our behavior? All right? Here's some points of application for a gospel-shaped life. A gospel-shaped life pursues an ever-growing vision of the cross. My challenge to you is to ask yourself, man, are you seeing more of God's grace, greatness today than the day you first believed? Are you seeing more of his holiness, his majesty, his awesomeness now than you did a year ago? Are you seeing more of your sinfulness today than at the hour that you first believed? Are you seeing more of your sinfulness now than you did a year ago? First John 1, we're told that those who belong to Jesus, we need to walk in the light, right? Don't, don't give in to the impulse of self-righteous religion and, and put, putting on like a front, a religious front to impress yourself and impress others and, and God forbid, try and impress him. No, walk in the light, First John 1 says. Don't, don't hide your sin. Be open with your, with your mess. Find someone you can be accountable to, that you can talk to, that they can pray for you. Don't hide from the community of the church and don't, don't, don't downplay your sin either. When we hide from our sins, when we put on a front, when we fake it till we make it, when we, when we downplay or, 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 or fake or try to, try to hide uh, our sin, we end up with a truncated view of the gospel to where that cross is not getting bigger and bigger as time goes on, but it gets, just stays the same or even gets smaller. No, are you seeing more of his greatness? Are you seeing more of your sinfulness? Pursue an ever-growing vision of the cross. A gospel-shaped life also never underestimates the patient mercy of God. Don't underestimate God's patient mercy. There's nothing that you have done that can keep you away from his grace. Let that be water to your thirsty soul. And if we don't underestimate the patient mercy of God, then that also means that there's nothing that our neighbor has done, that our friend has done, that our family member has done, that, are, that can keep them from the grace of God. Believe in what God can do in the life of the most unlikely convert. And lastly, a gospel-shaped life never underestimates what God can do through you. Don't underestimate what God can do through you. In verse 12, if you saw it, if you noticed it, Paul says, I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful and appointed me to his service. Then he goes on in verse 13 saying, look, what you see now in, in my service, in my ministry, what you see right now is not how I've always been. It's not how I've always been, but God has brought me a long way, and he can do the same for you. If God can make Paul this kind of a beast in the pulpit and trainer of planters and pastors and a, a, a pastor to many churches, if he could do that to Paul, man, imagine what he could do through you. Don't underestimate what God could do in you and through you. Listen, man, I can relate to that. 
to a much smaller degree. I didn't, I wasn't involved in the kind of nefarious stuff that Paul was, but I can relate to a smaller degree. I've lied. I've stolen. I've murdered. Paid for an abortion. I've mocked believers. I've also been the self-righteous religious person who looked down on others, thinking I was better than they were. God came into the world to save sinners. Sinners like me. Sinners like us. Let me end our time with a quote from a friend of ours, Jared Wilson. He's a writer in residence at a Midwestern Seminary in Kansas City. And I mean, I love his writing. He just has a way of like taking the big things of the gospel and putting it on the bottom shelf for all of us to just understand. Uh, I commend his writing to you, Jared Wilson. But here's what he says in his book called The Imperfect Disciple, which I think describes all of us. Wilson says, Jesus's major contribution to the world was not a set of aphorisms or general truths. He was born in a dirty barn, grew up in a dirty world, got baptized in a muddy river. He put his hands on the oozing wounds of lepers. He let whores brush his hair and soldiers pull it out. He went to dinner with dirtbags, both religious and irreligious. His closest friends were a collection of crude fishermen and cultural traders. He felt the spit of Pharisees on his face and the metal hooks of the jailer's whip in the flesh of his back. He got sweaty and dirty and bloody, and he took all of the sin and mess of the world onto himself, onto the cross to which he was nailed naked. My soul is not much to look at, but it is safeguarded by the one who paid himself for me. This is really the only hope that we've got. Sin is our problem. Jesus is the answer. There's no two ways about it. And if you're not too good for him, you can have him. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.